Houston, we have a problem. You know, I say that, and a lot of you hear that phrase, and you've been saying it for years, have no idea where it comes from, because it goes all the way back to a movie from 1995. How many of you were born since 1995? Let me see your hand. Raise them up high. Gosh. <laughs> Some of you just got really old in your mind, didn't you? And even the rest of that story is, is that that 1995 movie, Apollo 13, was actually a depiction of an attempt to land on the moon from 1970. And they had a problem. Astronauts that were attempting to land on the moon had an oxygen tank that exploded. And they had to figure out not just how they could possibly land on the moon, but how they could get back home. And in dramatic uh, license, the movie depicted that phrase as being Houston, we have a problem. And definitely it was a problem where life and death was hanging in the balance. I thought of that phrase this week as I thought about the message for today and the subject of today. And I began thinking about where we are and looking around in our life, we easily can see that we have a problem. Our world has a problem. Our hearts have a problem. And the three-letter word used to describe this problem is S-I-N, sin. We have a sin problem. Look with me in the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he begins to lay out this amazing, supernatural, inspired letter that addresses the problem of sin, and praise the Lord the remedy for it. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we see the problem. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, immortal, of the immortal God for images resembling 
mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Those words written almost 2,000 years ago are just as real and present in our day-to-day as they were the day that the Apostle Paul first penned those words. Last week, you could have left five minutes early from the message and came back this week and said, how do we possibly have a problem? Last week, we said it's good to know that we've been created by God in his image. And we saw that in creation, again and again, God said, it's good, it's good, it's good, until he got to the sixth day and he created livestock and things creeping around on the ground. He created created mankind, humanity. He created Adam and created Eve. And he looked at his creation and he said, it is very good. And we, we saw last week, that humanity was uniquely created from all other things God created, uniquely created. You see in the creation story of Genesis that humanity was uniquely celebrated by God, uniquely connected to God and being created in his likeness and in his image. We saw that humanity was uniquely commanded differently than all other creation and we saw that even humanity was uniquely companion. You had God establish the family and establish marriage, and he said he created a male and female. He said in that Genesis account that a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they would become one flesh. And we had this design of God's creation in his image and in his likeness and you walk away from that and you say 
What do you mean we have a problem? But just for a moment and now back today, not only were we uniquely celebrated and connected and commanded and companioned, we learn when you read on in Genesis that we were uniquely corrupted. In chapter 3 of Genesis, you have the fall of humanity. Sin enters God's good creation. And humanity, to this day, has a problem. It's a sin problem. Adrian Rogers says man really has only three problems. Sin sorrow and death and I would offer you today that sorrow and death are a result of that original problem sin we have a sin problem and we relate to that we ask questions in our daily lives like why do people do what they do maybe we say out loud in moments of frustration what's wrong with people today the real question to follow after that is to say, what's wrong with me today? Ask questions of why is the world the way it is? Why are some things that are wrong? What determines if an act is wrong? What determines if a lack of action is wrong? Is it according to my desire? What standard is right and wrong? All of these questions are part of this topic of sin. All of these questions flow from this problem of sin. And today I want to talk about this topic of sin. We're in a series called Good to Know. We said the first week in this series that it's good to know that the Word of God can be trusted. And last week we said it's good to know that we've been created by God in His image. And today I want to continue in this series to say that it's good to know that we have an enemy that counts every sin a win. Now, it's not good that we have an enemy. It's just good to know that we have an enemy. And this series of messages is kind of systematic theology, is kind of a primer for Christianity. And, and maybe you're 40 or 50 in this room, and you're thinking, I've kind of got this figured out. I'm, maybe my audience today is a little more uh, just maybe, I, like always, just kind of on an eighth grade level. And I just want to say to you that it's good to know that when we start looking around in this world and trying to understand it, that what we need to recognize, what it's, what's good to know is that um, things are messed up because there's a sin problem. And regardless of what different philosophers might offer, saying that actually the world is on some progressive pattern of getting better, the truth is, according to God's word, that we're not getting better better but our depraved hearts are fleshing out the reality of a sin problem and our hope of any better is solving this sin problem well who is this enemy who is this enemy that we have I want to give as little airtime as I can to the enemy it's not my goal to lift him up or exalt him I don't want to add lines to the script that God doesn't add 
back in January and February of this year, I preached a message here called Scouting the Enemy. We were in a series on spiritual warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, we talked a little bit about the enemy, and I just highlight some of those things that we said. You could go back to the second Sunday of January, the third Sunday of January on our webpage and find those messages, but we just remind you that when it comes to dealing with Satan and our enemy, that there are three threats for us. And those three threats are is that we can fixate on the enemy. And that is we spend all of our time and attention focused on the enemy. And the second threat is, is that we can underestimate the enemy. There is a powerful enemy, a supernatural enemy that roams, the Bible says, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. But the third threat is that we can overestimate the enemy. And so today as we talk about uh, the enemy, we don't need to fixate on the enemy. We shouldn't underestimate, nor should we overestimate. And so just a little reminder about who he is. The facts of the enemy, according to Ephesians 6, is that his nature is invisible and evil. His intent is to deceive and destroy. His tactics are strategic and seasonal. And his ability is limited and, praise the Lord, temporary. This enemy the Bible identifies as, as Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. He's the father of lies. In Genesis chapter 3, he shows up for the first time as the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, when we go right from God saying a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh and you come out of chapters 1 and 2 with all things good. Chapter 3 begins with the serpent, it says, who is more crafty than all other creatures. And because we're so close to that study of creation, it was certain they wonder about the creation of Satan, the creation of the enemy. Where did he come from? How did he get made? How did he get here? And here's the, here's the truth that I know. If we say anything today about the creation of Satan, we've said more than what the Bible says. We don't know. It's, it's, not, it's, it's speculation. We, we see the presence of Satan. We see the impact of Satan. We know how Satan works and what Satan does, but we're not told the origin of Satan. There is some verses of the Old Testament that if you want to explore later this afternoon, um, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Both of those passages have long stood as passages that people have interpreted to give some indication of how Satan became who Satan is. That's Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. I would love it if you'd stay with me for a few more minutes instead of reading those passages right now. Um, so we, 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 don't, we don't know much about his um, creation, but we know most about his attributes and his actions. And so as we talk about Satan and the enemy and spiritual warfare, I would lean on this wise word from Alistair Begg when he says, the plain things are the main things. Isn't that good? 
Someday I want to be a preacher like that. He just said the plain things are the main things. And what we have in Scripture is a very plain picture of how the enemy works and what the enemy does and what his goal is in sin. I would add to Alistair Begg's uh, plain things are the main things, and that is don't fear the unclear. And when we talk about Satan and it's unclear to us where he come for, came from or wh- what happened there, that's not something that we need to be afraid of. We need to take God's word trusting and believing that he gave us enough to deal with what we need to deal with. And so what's plain is, uh, are the attributes and actions of the enemy, his goal. His goal is to rob God of his glory and add that to himself. You see it in the presence of his work in Genesis, again with Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness and the gospels. His attempt to take glory from God and add glory to himself and be the one that receives praise instead of God receiving praise. He wants the praise. And if you hear nothing else today in the rest of this message, just know that when we're dealing with sin, Satan wants to win. And when he wins, he counts it as glory for him. He counts it as glory for his name. Every sin is a win for him. Does God bring good out of sin? He can. He can work and he can do things in the midst of us working through sin where God can eventually get the glory. But when sin happens, Satan is saying, it's on me. It's for my praise. And I hope that we would all see who's losing and who's winning when we sin. Weigh that out. Carry that into your battle with temptation and and recognize that we're, we're not talking about, oh, a mistake was made or I'm struggling. We're talking about Satan who's attempting to win. I want to give some information about sin today, and maybe the message is not so inspirational as it is informational, but it's good for us to know we have an enemy who counts sin a win. So our problem of sin. What's the start of sin? You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and look there in Genesis chapter 3 and that very first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God 
among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We have the start of sin. And that sin from the seed of Adam and Eve has been passed down from one birth to the next birth to the next birth right down to us today. Back in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. I still hear pages. Um, Romans 5 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so that by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That first phrase of verse 19 speaks of Adam's disobedience that made us all sinners. And God's creation went from very good to bad because sin had entered the world. Let me say a word to you about the separation of sin. What does sin do? How does sin work? What impact does sin have? And the most ultimate impact of sin is that it separates us from our holy creator. Sin separates us from God. And just as we read, just in Genesis 3 there, Adam and Eve in union with God before him, unashamed. The, the Bible says in chapters Chapter 2, that they were naked and unashamed before the Lord. Chapter 3, sinners uh, enters in and you have this act of sin that Adam and Eve commits and it immediately creates a separation between them and God. A holy God could not have relationship with sinful humanity. You read on in chapter 3 and you see that God took animals and he made skins from those animals and he clothed them. And it became a picture from Genesis on through the rest of the Bible of the shedding of blood to cover our sin. Let me say a word to you about the state of sin. What is sin exactly? Why is it a problem? Three things I would use to describe sin according to Scripture. One is sin is impurity. Look in Romans chapter 1. Back a couple of pages, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. And so we see that when we commit sin, we're committing an act of impurity before a holy God and in relationship with a holy God. Not only is sin an impurity, but sin also is unbelief. There are lots of Greek words that we use for sin. One of the most famous words or most known words would be the Greek word hamartia, but I doubt if any of us are ever in the throes of temptation and think, oh no, I'm about to commit hamartia. And, and so I don't want us to get lost in a long study of the three or four or five different Greek words that are used to describe sin, but we do find that the meaning of those words show us that what sin is is impurity and secondly that sin is unbelief. Sin is unbelief. And that's exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent came and said, did God really say? And then the enemy just opposed God completely and said directly, you shall not die. And you see the unbelief of Adam and Eve from the beginning of sin where there was this lack of trust in what God had said and a belief in what the enemy said and a belief that was better to do what the enemy said than to trust what God had commanded. In John chapter 16, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, it says that in John 16, verse 8 and 9, that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin because they do not believe in me. When we sin, you know what's happening? In a most practical way, when we sin, when we commit acts of impurity before God, what we're saying is what we've decided about what's better is better than what God has decided about what is right. And that's in the throes over and over again. And third, sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Sin is an act of rebellion against a holy God. From the beginning of time, God commanded. He set boundaries. He said, this is right and this is wrong. That's why today we would look in our world and in our culture and say, this is right and this is wrong. It's not because we've ran some kind of test and we've come up with some statistics that show that then the chances are that if you do this, it'll be better. The reason we know what's right and wrong is because we look at God's standard and God's word and he's established righteousness. He's established rightness. And when we sin and we go against what he has declared as rightness, we become those who have rebelled against him committing unrighteousness. And when our ways do not match God's ways, the description that God's word used is ungodliness. Emil Bruner writing about rebellion. He says, 
whenever the prophets, speaking of writers of the Old Testament, it's whenever the prophets reproach Israel for its sin, or rebuke Israel for its sin, confront Israel for its sin, whenever the prophets reproach Israel for its sin, this is the decisive conception. You have fallen away. You have strayed. You have been unfaithful. You have forsaken God. You have broken the covenant. You have left him for other gods. You have turned your backs upon him. Similarly, Bruner writes, the parables of Jesus speak of sin as rebellion, as leaving God. The prodigal son leaves home, goes away from the father, turns his back upon him. The wicked husband usurped the master's rights and wrongly seized the land which they only held on a rental. They are actually rebels, usurpers. The lost sheep has strayed away from the flock and from the shepherd. It has gone astray. That's what sin is. And when we talk about humanity having a problem, we're talking about humanity. We're talking about our hearts in unbelief, our lives living in impurity, our actions being acts of rebellion against a holy God. That's the state of sin. And fourth, say a word about the sentence of sin. So what's the big deal? Well, we're separated from a holy God by our acts of rebellion, impurity, and unbelief. And the sentence for that, as Jesus said in the beginning of Genesis, is death. Death. And when God confronted Adam and Eve in the garden, he came to them as people who, by the time they had disobeyed him in the garden, they had died spiritually and over their life, they would see the end result of that as being physical death. And that's what death does. Death separates us. Death ends things. Sin separates. Sin leads to death. Death of spirit and body. The Bible speaks to us in Romans 6.23 of the penalty of sin. You know it. 623 for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. That's why sin is so serious. James 1.15. Desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So the sentence of sin is death. Now this leads me when I think about Sin is being a rebellion toward God, impurity before God, unbelief in God, and the sentence is death, separated for eternity from God. It should leave us in one place. What can we do to escape the penalty of sin? What are you going to do to escape the penalty of sin? What is... What is what is the scope of sin? You said, wait, Pastor. You read that list earlier, Romans chapter 1. We gave a lot of, a long list. He starts out talking about homosexual activity. He goes on and he 
speaks in Romans chapter 1 about unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. I suppose in my own self-righteousness, there have been times when I thought, I'm clear of those. But he goes on. Lest we think we escape his list. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, another word for pride, boastful, inventors of evil. And then he throws in disobedience to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know the scope of sin? It's what Romans 3 would go on to say. For, what's the three-letter word? All. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the scope of sin is that all of us have sinned. Romans 3, 9, what then? Writing to Jews, here the Apostle Paul says, Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, he says Jews and the rest of the world, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So sin began, separated us from God. These are acts of rebellion, impurity, unbelief, and the sentence is death, guilt. There's a penalty for sin, and we all bear that wait now pity us all if the sermon had to end right there amen because there is last a savior from sin. And let that stir our emotions. Let that change our heart. Let that renew our minds. Let it change the way we live. <laughs> Satan may have won in your life over and over and over this morning. But today you can have something better. You can have a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. And a God who is patient with you has brought you to this day. And maybe you know that you're under the sentence of death because of sin in your life. And what are you going to do about it? For God so 
loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. But have eternal life. We have a savior. Yes. Houston. We have a problem. Yes, heart of mine, there is a problem. And every day that we lose to sin, we're basically repeating Genesis 3 all over and over again. And every sin, though, is a reminder of the price Jesus paid for me. Now how that serves as a deterrent to sin, a reason to fight the enemy. And you may feel like you're in the grip of the enemy today and cannot win. I share these words with you from John Calvin. He said, we have been forewarned that an enemy relentlessly threatens us. An enemy who is the very embodiment of rash boldness, of military prowess, of crafty wiles, of untiring zeal and haste, of every conceivable weapon and of skill in the science of warfare. We must then bend our every effort to this goal that we should not let ourselves be overwhelmed by carelessness or faint-heartedness, but on the contrary, with courage, re, with courage rekindled, stand our ground in combat greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world hallelujah praise his name I want to ask our worship team to come and give us a chance to declare this truth the enemy counts every sin a win but in the end because of Jesus Jesus wins. And I would invite you today, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin, to call out to him and believe on him, be saved in him. And if you've trusted him as Lord and Savior, make a recommitment of your life today to courageously stand your ground against the enemy who wants to win every day in your life. If you'd like to talk about being saved today, Find me. I'll be right out here in the commons after the service. You want to pray together? Come find me right out there. We'll pray together. Let's stand. Let's worship our Savior.